When will we solve the last mile problem of robotics? We've made robots that can go to the bottom of the ocean, that can operate in hard radiation in a melted down reactor. Robots that can go to Mars, fly around, drive around, do basic science, and so much more that we can't. But so many of our robots can't do the simplest things humans take for granted, like pick up objects, handle them, move them, work on them or identify by touch if an object is a flower or a nail. It's kind of the last mile of robotic capability, and one of the megatrends I follow is robotics and automation. This is right down the strike zone. There's a company that's building undersea robots for the Navy that is working on exactly this problem. They also make helper bots for the solar industry and for perhaps the toughest place to put a robot, construction sites. Here to chat is Jorgen Pedersen, who built RE2 Robotics in Pittsburgh, sold his company to Sarcos, and now serves as the COO of the combined company. Welcome to Tech First, Jorgen. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Let's start really big picture. What's the end goal for tactile robots? Well, what we're trying to achieve is you know, uh, getting to that true human-like capability, right? So we, we have the ability to be dexterous, to be strong, to be precise uh, in terms of course movement from going from point A to point B. But, uh, and, and most of the industrial automation market is really good at, at repeating the same task over and over again. But to perform those more challenging tasks, you need to start uh, incorporating more human-like capabilities. And one of those is that that ability to feel, right? It's called haptics, it's called, you know, perception, the, the ability to feel and to create shape from feel, you know, what, as a human being, you can close your eyes, uh, grab an object, and with your mind, you can recreate what, what objects you're touching in your, in your mind. So the touch is also a very powerful um, sense that needs to be incorporated to take us to the next level. Uh, and that's exactly what we're, we're endeavoring to solve. Talk about that next level. What does that enable? Uh, if you build a sense of touch into a robot, what does that unlock? Well, if you are in a, uh, even an industrial automation uh, situation, but even going beyond the factory floor, once you're grasping objects, knowing if you're grasping it too hard, too softly, if an object is starting to slip out of uh, figuring out how to optimally grasp an object to ensure that you have a, a, a firm grasp. Uh, and, and if you look at a human hand, it's a, a conformal grasper. So if you were to throw a baseball at a human hand, uh, it's an underactuated system where you, you hit that ball and it hits and all your brain is saying just close yep. and your uh, digits naturally conform to whatever shape is in your hand. So we're, we're mimicking that, that human trait in the way that we're approaching this. And now we're adding in also the sensing that's going to give us that feel to know, are we grasping hard enough? Uh, are we, is it starting to slip out of our hands? What's the texture of the, object that we're grasping. These key attributes will allow us to perform more human-like tasks in a, you know, safe and, and uh, you know, a more effective manner. The human hand is pretty crazy. It's incredibly sensitive. I did a little research just 
exactly yeah. for this show literally this morning there's a university of california study in 2017 that found that we can feel the difference between surfaces that differ by just a single layer of molecules a single layer that, that blows my mind uh, I, i'm sure yeah. there's there's different people for that you know that are super sensitive and there's probably me that you know oh is there a baseball or is it a football yeah. but do you think robots will ever get there absolutely it's it's just a matter of time uh, and the perception, the, the feeling part of it, that, that may be the, the, the easier part. You have these multimodal sensing uh, solution, but interpreting what you're sensing, that's the hard part. And this is where you, you know, the human brain is amazing that it can take so many forms of, it can take heat, pressure, vibration, and, and combine them all very effectively to provide a very solid understanding of what's being interfaced with. That's interesting, right? Because that goes back to what you mentioned earlier, which is you're building a mental model of the object, right? Which in kind of, <laughs> I don't want to get to this level of consciousness or something, but you, you've obviously got some level of AI that you've got to put in place if you're going to, you know, what does this feel like? What are its dimensions? What's its texture? All What's its weight? How strong does it feel? Does it, does it give a little when I press, right? All of that, that's pretty right. complicated. Yeah, absolutely. The, both parts are equally important. The sensing part, how do we sense it at a similar level as a human, but also the, the reasoning part, you know, the, the fusion and, you know, applying AI and other software techniques. And, and it's most likely going to be a, a multi-algorithm approach to ensure that we're providing the correct reliability that, that we need in order to perform some of these complex tasks. And there's even a third component, right? Because what you're doing is you're building robots that can go places people can't, and then relaying that information to an operator that might be kilometers, miles distant, who knows where in some safe place. Uh, talk about what you're working on for the US Navy. Sure, so we are developing a, uh, a conformal underwater hand that has the ability to feel. And once again, it's that multi-sensor approach. Uh, we're partnered with the UCLA, uh, Dr. Veronica Santos and University of Washington, uh, Professor uh, Jonathan Posner. They're creating that, that they perform that basic research to really solve some of those really hard problems uh, to provide that feeling, provide the, that sensing. Now, what we're doing is taking that foundational research and applying it to real-world robotics. Uh, we're going to do that first through this starfish hand that we're developing. We call it, uh, it, it's an acronym. Don't ask me to repeat it. But, <laughs> I, I saw uh, what it stood yeah. for. It was a very long acronym, but yeah. I like the word starfish. <laughs> yes, uh, and it, it's providing this conformal grasp where you can feel uh, and this is really important if you think of some of the tasks that Navy divers are asked to do. Uh, often they're in turbid waters where your visibility is limited. You may be having to perform a task and going back to you may have to do half of it if, and in, in some cases all of it based on feel versus what you can see. 
right? And so having this capability is critical to enable certain tasks that the Navy is looking to achieve. And one of those might uh, be, you know, dealing with a, a waterborne IED, right? <laughs> Think about the USS Cole, right? If we could have known about that threat, you, they would have sent a diver down to assess and render safe that threat. Those are the types of tasks that naval divers do today. No human should be doing that job, right? Or if they are, they should be at least remote and away from the danger. And that's where we come in. Talk about the USS Cole. I mean, when I'm hearing that, I'm thinking of the U.S. Navy vessel that was attacked by like a powerboat that was loaded with explosives. But I think the USS Cole was different. Was that something attached to the side? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. So uh, oftentimes devices, you know, can be placed alongside of a, uh, you know, vessel and, you know, ex usually explosive devices to render that vessel inoperable. Uh, and, uh, you know, naval divers are the ones who have to go take care of those yes. threats. So uh, we need to remove humans from harm's way. And, and, and robotics is a perfect way to do that. Absolutely. I, I mean, I can't imagine being somebody who defuses bombs on land, never mind <laughs> dealing with the underwater. Yes. And you mentioned turbid waters. I mean, oftentimes these ships will be attacked perhaps in a harbor. Harbors are not known for having clear water because there's a lot of ships moving okay. around, a lot of screws churning up the water, the mud, all that stuff. So... I mentioned that third piece because you talked about the sensing, you talked about the integration of the data, but the third piece is that telling an operator or helping an operator feel what the actual robot is feeling. So you're working on these remote technologies, the operator is safe, maybe on board another vessel, maybe you know in the harbor. The robot might be deep down below or maybe even, you know, in another case, maybe in a nuclear reactor. What kind of feedback can the operator get about what the robot is touching? So uh, the answer is it depends. If you have a good pipe, right, uh, with high bandwidth, low latency, you can provide a very strong feeling back to an operator when you're dealing with an, a tele-operated system. Where we're, we're moving towards is uh, the concept of supervised autonomy, where you're pushing more of the thinking, the AI, the software down onto the platform and letting it close the loop, and which can be done. Uh, you can have a very tight control loop locally with the robot, and then you're just providing higher level feedback commands to the operator and seeking guidance on how to move forward with the the, the mission. So I, I mentioned waterborne IDs, and uh, which is performed by expeditionary explosive ordnance disposal uh, crews. But we also are tackling what's called the mine countermeasure mission for the Navy. This is where you may have a moored mine in, in a harbor uh, or in an area. It's meant to keep ships, whether they're ships or submarines, uh, from coming into an area. But we want to render these these devices safe. So with that same system that can be teleoperated, we now have the ability to autonomously swim to a threat, locate it, grab a device that's on board, uh, arm that device, place that device on the threat, and render it safe without it going high order. Wow. Right. So 
in this case, the reason I'm bringing this up, the humans still involved, but they're there uh, more as a supervisor, mm-hmm. a guide mm-hmm. that understands all the nuances. And if there's an edge case, you know, an error that uh, something that hasn't been seen before by the robot, the human's still there, and they're providing that input on how to overcome any error or new situation that that arose, and doing it by sending information which doesn't require as much bandwidth or latency. And now you can extend your mm-hmm. reach, and you can go mm-hmm. farther. And the, you know, eventually the person will be simply on shore, and these ships and and ROVs and underwater vehicles will be out performing tasks, sending uh, you know s- small data packets back to shore where the operator is there to provide that that high level guidance to a mostly autonomous system and really you know talking about keeping people out of harm's way having people back on shore and you're still able to complete these tasks mm-hmm. very effectively uh, anywhere with the ocean Super interesting. And of course, if you happen to have a high bandwidth uh, connection, then then you could get, you know, perhaps higher levels of tactility and perhaps higher levels of um, not just uh, telling the robot the strategy or the, the goal, but actually operating in terms of the tactics and everything as well. Very, very interesting. Where do you see this growing in the next five years or so? What do you think you'll be shipping in five years? Yeah, I mean, we're going to be seeing enhanced end effectors, right, that are entering the market. You know, the majority of what you see out there is a, a two-finger gripper, right? Uh, and and there's a good reason. You, 80% of, of what you do as a human just requires <laughs> a thumb and an index finger. Okay, you, you add in a, you know, the, the ring finger and you, you're getting more of a secure grasp. Uh, the other digits are marginally useful <laughs> marginally, to um, <laughs> Does anyone really need a pinky? I don't know. That's the Yakuza. uh, (laughs) Yes. Uh, But we are going to see these more human-like hands. Maybe you don't need five fingers, and it doesn't necessarily have to be completely anthropomorphic Mm -hmm. initially, you know, where it's replicating a human design, but it should be conformal. It should be under-actuated, which means that it can be affordable, Right. Because if you were to actuate every single link of a, a you know, a finger, that those costs mm-hmm. add up mm-hmm. significantly. So the idea is that we're going to have these multi-digit conformal hands that have enhanced sensing out there that will enable more tasks that currently only humans mm-hmm. can do. But in the next five years, we'll be able to see robots helping to augment human capability and allow for supervised autonomy in new markets. Well, that's pretty amazing because um, you're obviously doing stuff that's undersea. You're also working in the solar industry. You're also working in the construction industry, which is a notoriously tough space to put robots. It's chaotic. It's always changing. That pile of things you put there yesterday isn't there today because somebody used it and built something with it, right? And so it's always changing. Uh, you could also assume like, we're really opening up space right now. I mean, we're launching we, half the satellites that are in orbit have been launched in the last few years, right? Elon is working really hard at that, right? You know, yeah. there's going to be some opportunities in space as well, one would think. Yeah, no, absolutely. The 
Solar is a, a perfect example of where robotics is needed. We have a, a program uh, with the Department of Energy right now. Uh, it's in partnership with some electric uh, power companies as well as EPCs. Um, those are the companies that install mm. solar fields uh, for energy companies. There's a strong pull for this type of technology, and, and there's a couple of reasons. One, there's a labor shortage. Most people do not want to do that job. It's usually out in the middle of a desert or some remote place where people don't And that want job to go. is what, cleaning the solar panels so that they're at high efficiency all the time? Uh, no, this would be the installation. Really? Right. Wow. Uh, yeah, so the people pick up these photovoltaic panels or PV panels and move them from a delivery vehicle over to a racking system. Then they have to secure it to the racking system. And that racking system, uh, it can rotate and track mm-hmm. the sun. Uh, but it's these panels weigh around 50 mm-hmm. pounds right now. But the industry is moving to higher efficiency panels, which means that these panels could weigh up to uh, 100 pounds soon, which would make it even more challenging for humans to be able to perform this task. Right now, it's very prone to injuries, fatigue, you know, uh, this isn't a job that people can do into their, uh, you know, later <laughs> part of their career. So uh, this is a perfect opportunity for robotics where you could still have those do- domain experts there on site, but you're putting the brawn mm-hmm. on the robots, right? And and now uh, what could was, uh, you know, a crew of six people is now down to three people, right? So we're addressing the labor shortage. But we're also extending the careers of those people doing that job because they're not doing that backbreaking work themselves. They're just there to help guide mm-hmm. these systems. Uh, and then there's a you know another win that we can do it with higher quality and increased speed. So now we're getting to green energy that much mm-hmm. faster, which is helping you know helping society uh, mm-hmm. as well. So it really is a win-win situation of a perfect application of applying robotics to an existing yet growing. uh, And sensitivity is pretty important there as well, because maybe you're lifting that hundred pounds, but you do not want to damage those expensive panels. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. There's a, it's a common occurrence to, you know, create micro cracks in these and, those micro cracks during installation, you know, really affect the efficiency of the panel. And then as you go through the, the install, uh, you know, afterwards and you find these, it's then becomes even more expensive to have to go back and replace out however many, ten, even 10% of a, a large solar field is sure. very expensive sure. to swap out those sure. PV panels. So, Jorgen, you built a lot of this technology that we've been talking about uh, with your company, RE2 Robotics, I believe in the Pittsburgh area. You recently sold it to Sarcos. Right. Is that just for scale? Is that just for capital? Is that for joining forces with, I mean, Sarcos, I actually interviewed them too, probably something like a year ago, and they've got some pretty cool tech. Is, yeah. is one plus one equaling three here? That's exactly why we did this, right? Well, first of all, both companies had the same mission, right? We're improving worker safety and productivity through robotics, right? And we are providing human augmentation systems, whether it's an exoskeleton, uh, which is, you know, Sarcos is mostly known for, 
uh, but also these mobile manipulation systems. So putting these robotic arms on uh, vehicles that move through the world to perform tasks outside of the mm-hmm. factory floor. And really that's where we play. And that's where that was the perfect mm-hmm. fit uh, strategically. RE Squared has been de- developing these robotic systems to work, to go where humans go, to do what humans do. And Sarcos has been designing these systems to augment human capability as well. So when you bring those two worlds together, I'm really excited about the, the cross-pollination that's going to occur here, you know, and uh, look at and what's really exciting is that the, the technology is complementary, right? So we all we've done really is put together two world-class uh, teams of rare robotics mm-hmm. talent that have been looking outside the factory floor. Now, that said, we could still work inside the factory floor, but what's unique is we can, we can go mm-hmm. where humans mm-hmm. go, right? And, you know, you bring those two worlds together. Now we have this huge portfolio of complementary technologies. Our toolbox is that much bigger now. Uh, So whenever we're looking at a new market or even new applications within an existing market, we, the breadth of solutions that we have to bring to bear is Mm -hmm. incredible. And that's what's really exciting about these two worlds. Is it significant that you're in the Pittsburgh area? I mean, there's long been a history of innovation there. And as we move sort of into the internet, web, cloud era, a lot of the locus of innovation, just in the states in general, of course, there's always been a lot in New York and Austin, you know, but a lot has moved to the West Coast. And as we enter kind of new phases, I mean, we kind of built out cloud we've kind of built out social there's going to be continual evolution there but some of the hard technologies that are going to change our world whether it's solar whether it's green energy related whether it's automation that's going to make our lives better you know those sorts of things we're not seeing we didn't see so much of that let's put on the west coast what's significant about being in pittsburgh so I'll, I'll state that when I founded RE Squared in, in 2001, there were, there were six robotics companies in town, in Pittsburgh. When I sold RE Squared, there is over 100 robotics organizations in town. Uh, and that, that momentum continues to grow. And, and it's significant, especially because there's a uniqueness in Pittsburgh. You know, we have the Pittsburgh Robotics Network. Uh, and... What's unique about Pittsburgh is very collaborative, and it's a community uh, where we, we've machined parts for other robotics companies in town. We've uh, lent engineers to other robotics mm-hmm. companies in town, and vice versa. We help each other out. That ecosystem uh, and the camaraderie is very strong, and I think you know that's part of what Sarko saw is being able to tap into this rare talent that is in Pittsburgh. There's now a critical mass here, and it's continuing to grow. Companies are moving in. Uh, you have Carnegie Mellon and other universities still you know, creating this new talent uh, every year. Uh, so we're leveraging that as Sarcos mm-hmm. is tapping that. 
uh, in order to continue to innovate, continue to fuel, you know, uh, exactly what we need. It's to really do. interesting to me uh, because uh, I think it was three years ago, pre-COVID, I visited uh, Odense in in Denmark, and also uh, I kind of dubbed it robot uh, robot island or automation island because that's a place. Uh, Denmark is a tiny country, ten million people, right? This is a tiny right. island, maybe a few hundred thousand people, but they had something like a hundred different companies there uh, that were all focused on robotics and different aspects, gripping, moving, all the lifting, all that stuff. And that's exactly what they told me is that having that sort of um, critical mass of companies, of talent, of, you know, we can do this part, you can do that part, we can collaborate, made it a, a, a hotbed globally on this one island in this tiny country in Scandinavia. And uh, perhaps something similar is happening in Pittsburgh. It, it absolutely is. I mean, the Pittsburgh Robotics Network is very strong now. And what's even more powerful for Sarcos is, you know, we, we have, you know, the Pittsburgh location. We also have, we're in Salt Lake. So now we have a kind of not really East Coast, not really West Coast, but both sides of the country represented. So in terms of uh, the war on talent, right, we now have access uh, to both sides of the country. So if someone would rather be on one side of the uh, the country or the other, now we're, we're providing flexibility. Uh, as That we is another interesting point you mentioned because the war on talent, right? I mean, that has changed in the last three years as well. Whereas everybody wanted to be, I wanted to be in New York. I wanted to be in San Francisco. I wanted to be wherever, Miami, you know, whatever it was. People are going back to where they came from. People are moving places they never were because I can work from anywhere. Um, anyways, Jorgen, I want to thank you right. for taking this time. You're, you're taking this time for this interview on the day you're actually moving. Um, so really do appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for your time and um, yeah. have yourself a wonderful day. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it.